All right, everybody, welcome back. You read the title, then I, I suspect you know what this episode is, but it's another episode of Bass and Breakdown for the month of June 2020. It's myself, Tavis, joined today by Kevin. Hey, guys, how's it going? And we're pretty excited to bring you some hot stories because it looks like we're getting out of news that's predominantly coronavirus and people losing money. Of course, there's still going to be some of that. So we've tried to pull stories unrelated, new, and fresh so that you guys hopefully at least are a little bit entertained. We'll kick it off with our neighbors to the north up in the Powder River Basin. Originally scheduled for June 22nd, the BLM planned to open 170,000 acres of land to bidding by energy developers. In addition to the federal government halting sales in Wyoming, neighboring states like Montana and Idaho are being threatened by federal courts siding with conservation groups. These lawsuits are leading to the voiding of old oil and gas leases that occurred in Wyoming. This is tough for the state because much of the income and taxes that it generates are associated with hydrocarbon production and land sales. Unfortunately, that is being tossed into the sea of uncertainty as the federal government struggles to make final decisions in this pandemic environment. I think at any other time, a lot of E&P companies would be pretty upset with this, but it seems like right now it's more of a state problem. I mean, even so, you kind of you feel bad for those guys up, up north. You know, Like you said, and like we just said, a huge portion of their revenues are coming from oil and gas and just any kind of hiccup in this industry is really going to make them struggle down struggle the road. Those states, yeah. But like we're saying, state budget in shambles. Next story. Thanks to current events that we are all too familiar with at this point, the state of Wyoming faces a significant plunge in energy and other revenues that is projected to wipe out $1.5 billion in the next two years. The general side of the budget will lose $1 billion in revenues, while the school funding side of the budget is projected to lose $500 million. These budget revisions will likely cost the jobs of some government officials, and this is primarily because much of the severance tax that the state counts on from oil and gas is dwindling due to the pandemic. So, related stories there, but local governments put in a tight place. But Wyoming, not the only state struggling right now. If we go over to the Bakken area, specifically the areas within North Dakota, they're having some similar troubles themselves. North Dakota's oil production has grown more than 350% in the past decade alone, which boosted the state's confidence in the ability to rely on it for tax revenue purposes. North Dakota claims a little more than 50% of its state income from oil and severance taxes, and although its portfolio is anything but balanced, its budget has been, up until now that is. In the face of the current pandemic, the local government is scrambling to make appropriate cuts in order to prevent fallout further down the road. Already, unemployment rates have jumped from 2% to 8.5%, and current predictions show that the state's GDP could fall between 15 to 25% within the next year. Man, that's a lot of people that don't have jobs right now. That's tough to see. I mean, although it seems like the oil and gas industry up there is getting hit a little bit worse because about 13.5% of just oil field service jobs in the state have been lost. So looks like... <laughs> Oil is really helping boost that number, not in a good way. Not in a good way, but hopefully there's something to be done for that. Speaking of jobs, although unemployment is on the rise, the Bakken Restart Task Force, how cool is that name, <laughs> is mandating the acquisition and plugging of 350 wells with the potential for more in order to support the industry's workforce. The North Dakota Industrial Commission recently approved the orders and secured $33.2 million in federal relief funds to back the project. If all goes according to plan, this should accommodate five to 600 oil and gas service sector jobs. Now, this isn't quite 
close to the thousands that have already been lost, but hey, it's a step in the right direction, right? Oh, this is definitely going to help a lot of people. I mean, lots of lost jobs, but 500 to 600 potential new service jobs, that's going to be quite a boost for a lot of the people in that area. Heading on down to Oklahoma, let's give you some news on the scoop and stack play. As Rare Petro covered in a previous Basin Breakdown, Chesapeake was mulling over the idea of filing for bankruptcy. Unfortunately, on the 28th of June, that nightmare became a reality as the company was forced to enter Chapter 11 protection thanks to its $9 billion in unmanageable debt. The company has coordinated with leaders to cut $7 billion of its debt and plans to continue normal operations through the bankruptcy process. At one point, the shale pioneer was valued at more than $37 billion. Now, it's barely worth more than $100 million according to the market. Ouch. What a fall from grace. $37 billion to $100 million. As your title suggests, a titan falling away. It's sad. It's sad to see because that was such a large player, especially during the shale boom, but we'll see how the legacy moves on. This could not be the end. Restructuring doesn't have to be the death. But the next story, we've got big potential energy payouts. Congress continues to be lobbied to consider energy-related stimulus packages that would provide great support to energy production-dependent states, such as Oklahoma. States that would opt into the proposed program would receive a single cash infusion to compensate for the gaps in budget thanks to quickly diminishing demand and, therefore, revenues. In exchange for taking advantage of this assistance, states would promise to return estimated revenues from future oil and gas extraction on nationally owned public lands to the government for a decade. They would also have to work to make their public lands emissions neutral for that 10 years. While the stipulations may seem severe, the compensation could reach $11.2 billion in total if all states took advantage of the offer. Oklahoma is estimated to receive around $32 million. Now, this seems like a good story up front, but how far will $32 million go for a state like Oklahoma so centered around oil and gas production? I mean... At the very least, it could protect some jobs. You know, if if people are working, they're going to be spending money. I mean, just it, it keeps the economy moving forward. So, you know, $32 million if you put it towards, you know, drilling a new well, completions like that, probably not going to go very far. But keeping people employed. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of wages. Bingo. After the Tulsa Trump rally on June 20th, the United States Geological Survey was flooded with calls from a couple hundred people attempting to report an earthquake. This earthquake rambled through at a magnitude of 4.2, about 80 miles west of Tulsa. Now, to give you an idea, that probably means you had some lights on the ceiling swinging around, potentially some walls cracking, but nothing too severe. This quake was actually the largest one seen in Oklahoma since a 4.4 magnitude quake went off in May of 2019. Earthquakes have been no strange occurrence in the past, and many are attempting to correlate the increased activity with the injection of wastewater. Regulators have now directed producers to close some injection wells. I mean, we just said that the correlation is between injecting wastewater and um, these earthquakes. So why, if they're closing these injection wells, that just means they're going to have to inject more into others. Isn't that the cause of these earthquakes, Tavis? I would think so. It seems like poor management. I mean, outside looking in. Granted, I'm not a regulator, but it seems like there's a misbalance of in versus out in terms of injected fluids. Absolutely. So I think instead of having them close some injectors, maybe have them drill some new injectors. If you drill more wells, it's kind of going to relieve the pressure from certain injectors. 
I just think that they're looking at this a little wrong. Yeah, maybe consider some tighter spacing or something else, because clearly whatever they're doing has not been working for the past few years. Let's get to somewhere interesting. And somewhere that's always been interesting for this podcast has been California. Boy, do we have some stories. On June 25th, the California Air Resources Board adopted a first-in-the-world regulation requiring truck manufacturers to transition from commercial diesel trucks and vans to electric zero-emission trucks, with a plan for every new truck sold in California to be zero-emission by 2045. This process will scale with time, starting with a 9% requirement by 2024. While the requirements will not be the same, the plan extends to cover ships, trains, harborcraft, and cargo handling equipment sold within LA and Long Beach areas. I mean, I think this is kind of cool, but I don't think people realize that these electric vehicles are, in the long run, actually going to be worse for the environment than combustion engines. Yeah, when you have 400 train cars and old harbor craft that is done, is needed to be disposed of, what do you do with all those rare earth metals? That's going to take a lot of money to dispose of. And also, I just don't see all of these being able to run off of electricity efficiently. Definitely not efficiently in, you know, what is this, 2045, the requirement? I mean, that seems for us like uh, a long way down the road, but in 25 years, I don't necessarily know if the technology is going to be there to have all of these things run super efficiently. I don't see an, a commercial electric LA and Long Beach area in that amount of time, but hey, maybe I'm just a pessimist. They might just be trying to get the future LA, you know, that <laughs> they talk about in all these movies, a reality. Scientists from the University of California recently conducted a study in an attempt to link oil and gas production to underweight babies. At first glance, this report states that there is a 40% increase in likelihood that a baby will be born underweight if the mother resides near rural oil and gas production. This, of course, comes after adjustments for variables such as socioeconomic status and age. Before those adjustments, the difference is a 1% increase from 5% to 6%. Sabrina DeMaio Lockhart, spokesperson for the California Independent Petroleum Association, said socioeconomic factors could explain the findings, such as access to prenatal care, low incomes, and underlying health conditions. She was quoted saying, Pinpointing direct health outcomes to one highly regulated activity ignores the fact that there are so many socioeconomic variables that can impact public health. California has the strongest environmental protections for oil and natural gas activity, Extremists will use the headlines to generate fear in their push for stricter regulations. This is frustrating to me because there was initially a 1% difference, and they were able to justify it at 40%, but I just don't know how much I believe it. I This whole story just frustrates me. I think it's just people grasping at straws to try and get oil and gas out of their state, which what people don't realize is, I mean, there's billions of dollars in tax revenue that go to supporting their schools, their roadway systems. I mean, anything that gets, you know, public funding is funded by oil and gas. If you try and get rid of it, where's that income going to come from? Exactly. And there's still plenty of people complaining about hydraulic fracturing I've seen and how many frac crews are actually running right now in California. Close to zero? Maybe one or two. I know that Era Energy got a permit to start hydraulic fracturing again, and I think they just about finished their job here, you know, about a week or so ago, which steps in the right direction, but again, you can't even imagine how much criticism that was met with. No, good luck to ERA, and hopefully they don't catch too much flack for their decisions. 
All right, I think I've had about enough excitement from California, but next, Permian. Is there going to be an end to the flaring in that area? In 2018, it was recorded that Texas producers flared away $750 million in natural gas. This came from a report published by the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, which also went on to state, quote, in the current price collapse in anticipation of a boomlet, prayer has been abandoned and the industry is burning surplus gas to prop up oil and gas prices. It is not working, end quote. In order to address these new concerns, EOG paired with New Mexico's Oil Conservation Division to launch a new project. This project addressed temporary shutdowns of third-party pipelines where gas was looped back into active wells during an outage instead of flaring it and then reintroduce the gas back into the system when pipeline operations were restored. Other solutions that we're seeing a lot of include the development of cryptocurrency mining units that withstand the Texas heat. I just think that's so cool. They're using this extra gas that they used to just flare away, not use it at all. They're using it to run generators that are running supercomputers to mine for cryptocurrency. That's just, it's genius. And a lot of people are taking that on, especially in the Midwest and Northern areas that do produce. But Texas is just so hot. If you see pictures of these production units or these cryptocurrency trucks, it's just a storage container full of computer doors open up the doors are fans and they just push so much air it's insane but if they can overcome that i mean it seems like you know kind of adapt overcome type mentality but i just think that's a super cool um kind of something that we've been talking about a lot you know limited technological advancements in a depressed price environment but you know when regulation forces your hand i think you know this is just super cool Additionally, the Sierra Club has filed suit against the Army Corps of Engineers seeking to invalidate the permit granted to the Permian Highway Pipeline. This pipeline is a joint project between Kinder Morgan, Eagle Claw Midstream Ventures, and the Apache Corporation. Construction for this 430-mile pipeline from the Waha Hub to the Gulf Coast to the Gulf Coast export markets began in March in order to address issues centered around carrying capacity. The Sierra Club claims that proper evaluation of environmental risk has been neglected, so the process made thus far has halted until legal resolution is reached. It's unfortunate that this project has halted because, to me, it seems like the evaluation of these environmental risks has already been kind of taken care of. What are your thoughts, Davis? No, I completely understand. And like you said, it's great that people are taking political action, but I think I showed you a picture from this article when I first pulled it up with a lady holding up a sign that said, uh, pipelines and nuclear are not clean. And it's of uh, the infrastructure we have. That's some of the I was I was going to say, what people don't understand is actually pipelines are the cleanest way of shipping oil from place to place. I mean, you put it in a truck, truck crashes, boom, spill. Trucks crash all the time. Uh, loading the truck, you can have spills there. Deloading the truck, you can have spills there. Pipeline, the only way you're going to have a spill is if there's a leak in the pipeline, which you notice incredibly quickly as your pressure drops, but people just don't quite understand those nuances. No, and with the pipelines, I mean, something happens, they catch no breaks. So let's see how that develops. It'll probably be interesting through the month of July, and we'll get that to you on the next Basin Breakdown. But we'll keep it in Texas for now and move over to the Eagleford Basin. And Occidental Petroleum is knee-deep in lawsuits. Occidental is currently suing Sanchez Energy in bankruptcy court. Sanchez recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, 
but originally planned to buy 155,000 acres of Eagle Ford leases from Anadarko in January 2017 for $2.3 billion. Sanchez's bankruptcy is still pending, but Occidental is worried that the restructuring will leave them holding the liability on the deals that were used to support the sale. Attorneys for Occidental summed everything up very well, saying, quote, Anadarko would not have sold the Comanche leases in Wells to Sanchez and other purchasers without the assurance that Sanchez would perform all of Anadarko's obligations, end quote. So this is a big muddled mess. It sounds like Sanchez was liable for operating the acreage that it purchased from Anadarko before it went to Occidental and in light of recent price changes has decided not to. So Occidental is suing the company that, ah, oh, this is this is too much to keep up with. It's really a, a, a brain bender. But I mean, at the end of the day, Oxy basically is starting to acquire all these problems that Anadarko has, and it's really why they're struggling so much. Right? I mean, that's not the only reason, obviously, but it's it's hard to see. But something that's not hard to see: the rig count for the Eagleford rushing towards zero. At the end of June, the total number of rigs in the Eagleford was 11. This is down 85% from the number of rigs seen one year ago today, which was 73. Texas as a whole has seen its rig count fall from 463 to 111 with the majority of these rigs being within the Permian Basin, thanks to easier access to resources and lower associated costs of production and transportation. These are the lowest numbers for rig count since Baker Hughes has started recording these statistics back in 1987. Oof. Yeah, all the hot spots seem to be located in the Permian, and like I said a couple months ago, Eagleford is turning into Texas's red-headed stepchild. Not a lot of people interested. I mean... I'm not super interested. It's hot. It's dry. <laughs> I mean, there's no work going on down there. So, I mean, but in but in all serious, it is, again, it's it's tough to see, you know, rig count was already low in June, but going to zero. I mean, just think about all the jobs and opportunities that are, you know, displaced by this. Oh, yeah. And granted, this is Basin Breakdown, so we're covering news from about last month. Last month, it was down to 11, so... Keep up with Monday Madness to see how low it actually goes. But it's about time we finish things up in Texas and take it over to some more gas territory in the Marcellus Basin. The Susquehanna County Township is the only place in Pennsylvania where state regulators have shut down new Marcellus shale drilling until leaking wells are remediated and methane gas contamination in the aquifer subsides. The moratorium on drilling the nine square mile box has lasted for a decade. The contamination in the region has been the subject of investigations by state and federal environmental and health agencies, civil lawsuits, the documentary Gasland, several books, and advocacy groups by celebrities. Pennsylvania's Office of Attorney General is charging Cabot with seven counts of prohibition against discharge of industrial wastes, seven counts of prohibition against other pollutions, and one count of unlawful conduct under the Clean Streams Law. Quoting, the grand jury presentments proved that Cabot took shortcuts that broke the law and damaged our environment, harming our water supply and public health. They put their bottom line ahead of the health and safety of Pennsylvanians. Now, I can't speak too much on this because uh, I was probably in high school when this started. Yeah, no, I was 12 years old when this all started. Well, people think that it's an issue of hydraulic fracturing, but that's just not the case. It's really just gas leaking up the annulus and through the cement that's contaminating the water supply. Um, 
Is it possible that, you know, the hydraulic fracturing is causing too much gas to enter into the well, causing it to leak up the annulus? Yes. Is all this methane leaking into aquifers and to surface because of hydraulic fracturing? No. While there's not an issue of gas leaking to the surface in this next article, there is an issue of gas in a supply-demand limbo imbalance. Currently, the gas market in this region is oversupplied and even more so now thanks to COVID-19. I think we'll be saying that a lot in the future. <laughs> These days, it's not uncommon to see a truck delivering LNG to markets that demand this commodity. A great solution to mitigate the overuse of trucks would be a pipeline. But unfortunately for these businesses, many setbacks have occurred at the end of June that will likely make pipeline construction in the U.S. very difficult. These setbacks range from environmental-slash-indigenous protests to revocation of the past permits that are said to have been ill-designated. If the Appalachian region can develop a way to transfer gas long distances, ideally through a pipeline, it will be much better and more competitive position in the future. Something that we've seen time and time again, and a lot of things that we've been seeing this month that we'll be discussing on next month's podcast, but there's been huge pushbacks for pipelines, even though, as we discussed earlier, it's the cleanest and safest way to transport hydrocarbons from place to place. To finish off this episode of Basin Breakdown, we're going to bring it back home to Colorado into the DJ and Niobrara. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper accepted millions of dollars from corporations and nonprofits to fund initiatives and positions in his office, an arrangement that came with limited oversight and public disclosure despite the potential conflict of interest. The largest of these donations came from the oil and gas industry, where Anadarko and Noble combined gave $325,000 in his second term alone, according to a months-long analysis run by local news agencies. Now, the public cries for transparency and fears that some agencies, specifically oil and gas, are given preferential treatment in exchange for their donations. Now, I totally agree with the fact that there needs to be more transparency. The public needs to know where these funds are coming from, what they're being spent on, but I don't really have a problem with oil and gas companies donating to causes like this. I mean, oil and gas is huge in our state, and... I mean, where did these funds go? Yeah, I don't really have a problem with any company or corporation deciding to fund the campaign of any candidate, but the money that they investigated in this report, some of it was sent to child literacy programs, scholarships for children within the state of Colorado, uh, veterans associations, and I think that's a great use of it. But if he can't show where every dollar amount went, then yeah, I understand why people are upset because there could be some things going on in the background. So transparency a good idea for the future but i really don't see a problem with anybody oil and gas or otherwise donating to a governor couldn't agree more but something i do disagree with is prop 112 coming back from the dead time and time again you see these bills these initiatives not quite getting through and the most recent was senate bill 181 right basically allows for local governments to decide what their oil and gas regulations are going to be which I really don't have a problem with that. Uh, I did have a problem with Proposition 112. Um, I'm glad that it you know, didn't get passed, but kind of like you said, it's back from the dead. Yeah, unfortunately, people keep pushing it. So the power of choice is great, but other groups disagree. Colorado Rising, which is an environmental group we have covered in past podcasts in early June, dropped its plan to get a measure on the ballot that would have tightened oil and gas regulations. 
That's a win there, including proposals to increase the distance between new wells and public spaces. It cited the pandemic and a legal battle over the state's decision to allow electronic voter signature gathering. However, Safe and Healthy Colorado, another group in favor of these restrictions, plans to take the effort to require a 2,500-foot distance between new wells and public spaces versus 500 feet for homes and 1,000 feet for schools, hospitals, and other high-occupancy buildings. Well, does that sound familiar? Probably because it's pretty much Proposition 112 and other bills alike back for another bout. Dan Haley, president of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association trade group, called the initiative reckless and unnecessary. Fighting this out at the ballot box year after year is not helpful or productive for Colorado, the environment, or anyone that calls this state home. What people don't realize is if you put a 2,500-foot distance between new wells and any kind of public space, you can't operate in Colorado anymore. They're quite literally trying to push oil and gas out of the state. When that happens, what's going to happen? They're going to lose tax revenues, you know, our economy's going to shrink. I just people are going to lose jobs. It's the quality of life will likely go down for a lot of people because I just don't think they understand how much money it brings in. And if you're restricting oil and gas to some tiny tiny little lucky segment where there's not a close by national park or someone in a shack or a small restaurant, that's that's the big hit to the industry. That's a big hit to the state's budget. Absolutely. So I just I, I hope that people understand the the value that this industry brings Colorado as a whole, you know, jobs, taxes, everything. But um, obviously, do your own research. You don't have to listen to our opinions. Um, but as you're doing your own research, you know, pop by our website. You know, we post a lot of information. Um, some of it, honestly, maybe a little bit biased, you know, having <laughs> petroleum engineering backgrounds here um, at Rare Petro. But um, a lot of our information is just, uh, to keep you informed. We're not trying to push agendas. We're not trying to, you know, shove things down your throat. We're just trying to help keep you informed. So definitely stay tuned, stay subscribed, and uh, we'll do our best to keep you up to date on all things oil and gas. Hey, Kevin's right. And recently, I've been given some new rights to handle a new email account. So if there's anything that you'd like to contact for me that you can't already leave in reviews, please email us at podcast at rarepetro.com. We'd love to discuss future segments, any questions you might have, or, I don't know, maybe some synergies. So let us know what you got. That's all we've got for this episode of Basin Breakdown. I'm Tavis. I'm Kevin. Until we see you next time, take care. Take care.